Hello, and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean for the History Programs at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. It has been just over two years since we uploaded our first recording to this podcast feed. Yeah, those of you that have been paying attention, remember that it was Everett Daig's episode on the history of Halloween. Since then, we have talked to dozens of historians about their careers and their research interests. Hopefully we have demystified the profession a bit and demonstrated some of the many ways that historians can enjoy rewarding careers inside and outside of academia. As we've mentioned before, the point of all of this is to introduce students and the interested public to what historians do all day. I apologize for the length of time since our last episode. My old bowling companion, James Fennessy, is off settling into a new job, and I just took over his old job as Dean of History, and suddenly we don't have as much time to do fun stuff, like, say, podcasts, as we used to. But we intend to carry on. We will continue to try to upload new episodes every other Friday, but, you know, no promises. Anyway, moving on. Today I am talking to Dr. Stephanie McConnell, an instructor for the graduate program in history, and a student in the Higher Education Administration program at SNHU. Today we will talk about Stephanie's academic and professional background, her research interests, and generally the working lives of historians. What is your name and what do you do? Uh, My name is Stephanie McConnell and I am currently an adjunct instructor for Southern New Hampshire University in their online graduate history program. Well, that's great. Glad to have you here. And can you give us a little bit of your academic and professional background? Sure. I have an undergraduate and graduate master's degree from Georgia State University, both in history. And I have a Ph.D. in history from Bowling Green State University. That's the one in Ohio, not Kentucky. And in the past, I worked as a secondary high school teacher for about three and a half years. And then I have taught at the community college level. I did that for about 11 years. And and then I've been with SNHU since 2014. All right. When you were going to Bowling Green, uh, you said you were working on your PhD. What was your dissertation research on? It evolved. For my master's thesis, I worked on the 1980 Olympic boycott. Being in Atlanta at the time, I was right down the street from the Carter Library. And so I did a lot of my research in the archives at the Carter Library. And as I got into graduate study in my PhD program, I really wanted to continue that, but I wanted it to be broader than just sports history, for lack of a better word. So I looked at the Olympic boycott as the beginning steps of the end of the Cold War. And I kind of carried through with Carter-Reagan policies that led to a lot of the sanctions and some of the high-tech technology withdrawal that the United States did regarding the Soviet Union, and kind of these steps leading up to the eventual end of the Cold War. How did the uh, boycott contribute to that? Was it an indication that there was some profound tensions there that needed to be resolved, or what do you see as the connection there? Well, what my argument was is that we often, in reading Cold War, in the Cold War historiography, we see a lot of comment about the Reagan administration, which makes sense. Then we hear a lot of comment about Gorbachev's policies and how they changed the Soviet Union internally. And oftentimes, the Carter administration gets some pretty negative results and responses in the historiography. And so I went at it with the opinion that there was more to the Carter administration responses, particularly 
to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan that were stepping stones for the stuff that came later. And so my argument is that the Olympic boycott set the stage for, yes, as you say, the tensions that we saw through the 80s and allowed the United States to kind of back away from the detente policy that we had had all through the 70s and set us up for some, some sanctions more than anything that had a real significant impact. And the two that I focused on were high technology transfer, which we had done pretty consistently as a nation through the 70s and completely backed off from in the 80s. And then the other one was grain transfer. Um, a lot of people don't realize that even though the Soviet Union was technically an American enemy during the Cold War, we were selling them enormous amounts of grain to help feed their population. And so when we stopped selling that, they had trouble feeding people. And it really made an impact in policies coming out of the Soviet Union to find better ways to feed their population. And one of you know the things we know about Glasnost and Perestroika were both related to that. That's interesting. When I teach uh, my survey classes and I talk about the end of the Cold War, I like to talk about the sale of grain from the U.S. to the Soviet Union. And it's interesting that you brought it up there because it always seemed to me that the end result of the Cold War, I mean, the, it feels like the writing is on the wall once one side has to buy food from the other side. <laughs> so it feels, it, it always felt to me odd that, you know, since we started selling them the grain, what, in the 60s or the 70s? Right, yeah, um, late 60s. So, it, it just always feels weird that the Cold War didn't end until, you know, the early late 80s, early 90s, when the reality of it is that the, the other side would not have survived very well without us. And I imagine the same thing is true of these high technology transfers that you're talking about. I'm guessing that a lot of those transfers are probably going one way from, from us to them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it just seems kind of amazing. And, and it always makes me wonder how much the Cold War was kind of... Uh, convenience almost not I mean, that might not be the right word but you know from the american perspective it's nice to have that boogeyman out there and yeah. so it's always kind of a question of how much was this hype versus actual capacity and sure they have nuclear weapons and all of that but again if we're the ones supplying them with food and with a lot of their their technology it just feels it doesn't feel like it's that big of a threat but I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's the kind of stuff you talk about in your dissertation. I don't get into that quite as much because most of what I have is kind of almost like a buildup. You know, the, the second stage is what comes after. You know, we begin with the grain transfers and we, we withdraw the high technology transfer. And then we start selling missiles to their enemies. So it's, I don't get into a whole lot of the, the political back and forth of was this truly the kind of threat that we were taught throughout at least my years as a, as a student. But, you, I mean, you make a great point that if, if we are propping up our so-called enemy, how, how deep is that threat? And, you know, some of the more recent historiography addresses that and, and definitely comes out and says we were getting ourselves into this situation, so what were we getting out of it? And a lot of it is that boogeyman, as you mentioned, that it's a whole lot easier to get your population to – turn over the financing for a military when they feel threatened. People are going to reject that out of hand if they don't feel like the enemy is real. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. So when you're talking about this transition where we stopped selling them the grain and we stopped with the technology transfers, uh, was that actually happening during the Carter years? You know, when people talk about Reagan ending the Cold War, there's always a group of people that kind of pipe in and say, well, yes, but remember, Reagan was basically continuing the policies of the Carter years. Carter was actually the one that started the military buildup and all of that. So how do you see the relationship between the two administrations when it comes to, to, to your topic here? I would agree with that characterization. I think that as an immediate response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in December of 79, the Carter administration started these policies, and a lot of them at the time were scorned in the media as things that wouldn't have make a difference, that were just visual. But as, as a whole, as comprehensive policy, when you put them all together, and then add on top of that some of the policies of the Reagan administration, I think they work together. I don't think that it's, it's as easy to say, oh, Reagan ended the Cold War or Gorbachev ended the Cold War. I think it's a, it's a longer-term situation than that. And so I would agree with you know the idea that Reagan continued Carter's policies, and then he did add some things on that maybe were – equally effective when all when they're all put together he certainly made it when it comes to you know his policy versus carter's he definitely added a bit more what word am i looking for um menace to it i suppose you know the whole evil empire rhetoric and all of that i mean carter's not the kind of guy that's going to throw around terms like evil empire but reagan went there with it and so it's maybe it's just a matter of like a kind of a good cop bad cop type thing sure and, yeah, I, I mean, certainly the rhetoric from the Reagan administration was much stronger. And, again, I think that has to do with personalities. But it also has to do, in, in my opinion, with the fact that Carter came into the presidency following this period of detente. And, you know, we were still not friends with the Soviet Union, but we weren't on the verge of a war either. And so he was walking, I think, a finer line but by the time Reagan was elected, we were back to this is our greatest enemy. We have to do something to stop the Soviet Union and their what we thought were their desires to spread outwardly. One of the books that I am really fond of and really encourage my students who are interested in this period to look at is John Gaddis's We Now Know. Um, because mm-hmm. what you find out is all the things that we thought we knew about the Soviet Union weren't real accurate, and a lot of that had to do with, I don't want to say failed intelligence, but incomplete intelligence. Incomplete in the sense of, because when I'm thinking of Cold War intelligence, you know, Kennan's long telegram comes to mind, which obviously was, you know, 20 years earlier, but uh, it still had this kind of core of it, that the Soviets are this unstoppable military behemoth who will roll right over us unless we massively integrate or arm, arm ourselves and all of that, which, of course, was... Not realistic, especially in the wake of World War II, but even later on, again, they're buying food from us and technology from us. And so was it more of a intelligence failure in that they were improperly inflating the power and capability of the Soviet Union, or was it some other version of uh, bad intelligence? I think it was related to a misunderstanding, or even if it was misleading, I, you know, I don't know that yet, but we believed that they had a a stronger military capability than they really did. And 
pure numbers, if you know, if you go and you look at the data and you just look at the number of soldiers, that might be true. But by the 1980s, we know that technology was an important part of fighting any kind of war or battle face to face, and they didn't have it, and we did. And they were desperately trying to get it from somewhere. And once we cut off selling them those high-tech technology secrets, if you will, then they were in a little bit of a bind. And I don't think our intelligence recognized just how valuable that was going into the Gorbachev years. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you you can create an army with 500 million people in it if you want, but if you can't supply them or feed them or anything, that army is not going to do much good for you, especially in, in a modern warfare environment like in the 80s, 90s, and 21st century. Exactly. Well, this is a really interesting topic. Are you continuing with this topic after you finish your uh, degree, or are you moving on to other things now? Well, I haven't worked on that topic in a while. I did some right after I finished my degree, but that's been a long time. I've actually, in the last couple of years, been looking, going kind of back to my sports history passion and looking at uh, Title IX and its some of its history. Oh, very cool. And where is that research going? What I started out doing was just, I was just interested in it as a professor, as an, an instructor on a college campus when I was teaching at a little small college here in North Carolina right after I moved, because I had an enormous number of female athletes in my classes, comparatively. It's a school of only about 2,500 students, and I was teaching classes with 25 students, and 17 to 19 of them were women athletes. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing. So I just started reading on it out of curiosity. And as I've expanded on just doing a little bit of research, certainly I wouldn't even characterize it as scholarly, but just interesting. Um, I've kind of veered more towards how Title IX has impacted our part of the higher education system, and that is the professoriate. I'm looking at you know, how many women are getting tenure track positions and how long it's taking them compared to their male counterparts and that kind of thing. That's great. That's something that the profession desperately needs. We need to have more analysis of what's happening uh, along gender lines and then also people of color, that kind of thing. I know that there's been kind of a concentrated effort, especially in groups like the AHA, the American Historical Association. They've had a series of articles and studies on trying to figure out who's getting PhDs, who's getting hired, who's getting tenure, geographically, where is that happening, you know, education level, but also demographically, how is that working? And so I think this is a huge conversation for academia, history included, uh, to, to have. So that, that's that's a, a great project, and hopefully you'll find something interesting to contribute to that. I hope so. If nothing else, it's helped me understand myself a little bit better. We've talked previously, and, the, and I have struggled as a as a woman who's also a mother who's also a phd and trying to be superwoman and do it all and there have definitely been times in my career and in my my life as a mom where i've said hmm, i can't do it all and i can't do it all well so how do i adjust and so that's kind of where i come from with that too is i love what i do as my professional career but i also want it to fit into my real life 
Yes, that's and that is that's a huge challenge. And um, let me know if you figure out a solution to that. I'm curious <laughs> yeah. about that. You know, I mean, I'm I'm male, but still, and so our, it's not the same. But still, yeah, the idea of balance, you know, the work life balance is difficult right. in any career. And when you've got kind of a high stakes, highly competitive field like academia, where there's so many PhDs out there looking for jobs, it creates this. In some ways, I guess it's maybe even amplified beyond what might be happening in other other fields and other industries. I agree. I think it, it's something I see with, I mean, even my husband, who has been with the same company for 25 years, struggles with the work-life balance. And and I sometimes think it's it's pronounced because I'm an academic. I have time to sit around and think about it and talk about it. But it's definitely something that I think that we can continue to talk about and examine and and just get a feel for whether or not we really have equity in our in our system, particularly the tenure system. Now, before we started recording here today, you were talking about that you are enrolled in a master's of education program. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I It's actually through SNU. Um, I am pursuing a master's in higher education administration. So one thing that I've started to think about now that I've been in higher ed for, gosh, 17 years is what comes next. Um, Like I said, I love what I do, but I also have two kids who are heading off to college in the next couple of years, and I have to start thinking about how that fits into my financial system. So I decided to pursue this with the potential idea of moving from classroom teaching into something else in the higher ed field. And I have been really blown away by, number one, how different it is to be a student online than it is to be a professor. And then the other side is the depth of what our administrators work with. I will admit I've kind of been one of those instructors who sometimes rolls my eyes when I see emails coming in from administrators. (laughs) Um, But now I, I kind of understand the other side of it better, and I see that their role is not just me and my students, but it's it's bigger than that. And they have goals that encompass so much more than one or two classes or one or two programs. And really trying to figure out what's best for the organization is, it's a challenge. And we've done things in my classes, particularly I'm taking a class this, this term right now, where I'm having to write an executive summary of an annual review for a fictional college, and I find myself thinking, oh, I never thought of that before. So it's been eye-opening for sure. That's interesting. I'm actually in the middle of writing a program review for the undergrad and grad history programs at SNHU, so I, I may have to draft you to help me out with that because <laughs> I have, I've never had any of this formal training that you're doing. I kind of fell into it <laughs> yeah. through, through you know, getting a, I managed to get the full-time teaching job, but then, you know, as administrators above me have resigned and all of that, I've kind of fallen into more and more admin type responsibilities, and yeah. I don't, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing, <laughs> so I should well, probably start looking into some of these classes you're taking. I will tell you that I feel that way often when I'm writing my papers for these classes. I find myself saying, as I'm writing, you have a PhD. Why is this so hard? <laughs> but it is because it's something I've never done before. It's a whole new area. 
Yeah, because, I mean, in a PhD program, at least I'll speak from my experience, there is no training. There's training in how to do research and training how to write and all of that, but there's actually very little training in how to teach. And then there's even less training in how do you do admin type stuff, because most of the faculty that we interact with in grad school, you know, there's always this faculty versus admin you don't want to call it animosity, but rivalry or, I don't know, faculty are always like, oh, admins, they're, they're all they're all crazy. We don't care about them. They, they're all bean counters, and we're the ones that are actually doing the important stuff. They're, they're just there to make our lives miserable through micromanagement or something. But anyway, so we, all, we kind of grow up in grad school with this idea that there's, ad, there's an admin versus faculty type dynamic going on in, throughout academia. And so there is no education in what those, ad, those mysterious admin people actually do. And so coming out of it, and I think even people that go into traditional tenure track jobs, which is pretty few and far between lately, but still, people that go into those jobs still have to deal with committee work and all of that. And I think a lot of people kind of get surprised going into an actual, you know, a full-time job that ad- admin is, it's not really faculty versus admin because faculty do admin stuff all the time. It's just you don't really get much training on that. And so that's great that you're doing some of that training formally. It probably should be required for a lot more of us. Well, I've found in my classes I've taken that with many of the students that are in there with me are on that same wavelength. They are on the admin side. And so in our discussions, when I kind of present my perspective from the instructor side of things, I get a lot of aha responses. Like, I never realized that. And, oh, I guess we should talk to faculty more and see how they feel about these things. And in my mind, I think, well, that's logical, isn't it? But, you know, it it, it goes both ways. We don't, as instructors, as faculty, we don't always see their side of it, but I think it goes both ways. They don't always think about our side. So it's been an interesting ride seeing different dynamic and a different side of how higher ed works. Yeah, I read an article, oh, this was a few months ago. I probably wouldn't be able to track it down even if I tried. But the article basically made the point that, Every faculty member should serve a stint in admin in some way, either as a department chair or an interim dean or something. They should always serve as some some role in admin. And administrators should also regularly have to teach also so they can so that both sides can kind of understand better where the other side is coming from. And I suppose that's true for really in any industry. I mean, it always makes sense that, you know, the bosses should have to work on the front line every now and then to get a sense of what the job is like. But it's interesting seeing that mentality start to get adopted in academia, because like I said, for so long, there was kind of this admin versus faculty split. And it's interesting to see how it's being addressed now. Yes, I, I agree. I think that the idea that all of us kind of switch roles every now and then, because ultimately, I, I hope our goal is to help our students when they leave and being more aware of the whole organization, I think can help any of us. So you are in kind of a unique position where you are an instructor at SNHU, but you're also a student at SNHU. I'm just curious, what is the experience like when you're looking, because you've been doing it from the professor side for a long time. How does your experience, how has your experience changed now that you're looking at it from a student perspective? Hmm. I have always said, because I taught online even before I came to SNHU, and I've been teaching online now since 2007. And I, every time people say to me, how do you do that? And how do your students handle it? One of the things I've always said is you have to be self-motivated. 
whether you're the instructor or the student, you've got to be able to say, okay, I've got these things I need to get done and sit down and get them done. That is a whole lot easier said than done. Yeah. Um, you know, like we were talking about with the work-life balance, I find that my first priority is always my students and doing that work that I'm being paid for. And then sometimes my work as a student is the last thing I do and it's not always my best work and I know that. Mm -hmm. And I, I've come to appreciate the role that my students are in because I know that the majority of them are working a full-time job somewhere else. They have families, they have children, they have to get to and from all of their activities just like I do. And now that I understand that, you know, sometimes Sunday afternoon at five o'clock is when they're doing their paper. And that doesn't mean that they put it off and they didn't care. It means they had all these other priorities that had to take precedent and they're trying to do this the best that they can. And so I think being a student has made me a more sympathetic and certainly more empathetic instructor. That's good. It's probably a lesson that everybody should you know, learn every now and then, because it's really easy for us to get caught up in, well, you know, in the real world, you'd get fired if you didn't come to class. Well, yeah, but the real world, you know, employer, an employment situation is different from a student situation. We can tell ourselves that we're trying to prepare them for the real students for the real world and all of that, but the reality is that employment, I know, I, I hate using the term real world, I keep doing it, but <laughs> you know what I mean, that people working in a job, the nature of going to work is going to create a different mindset for the person than going into a classroom or going on to Brightspace online. It's just, it's just, it just, there just is a difference there. And so it's not a perfect analogy. And so therefore, when instructors get hung up on the idea that, well, no, this student needs to learn a lesson about the real world. Well, I don't know. It's hard to say because, yeah, right. you don't, obviously you don't want to, you, you have to have deadlines and all of that. But on the other hand, it does make sense that there needs to be some, you know, you have, there has to be some leeway to right. allow for students to have busy lives. And I mean, it may be different at a, you know, a traditional four-year college where you've got 18 to 22-year-old students who, you know, are fresh out of high school, don't have very many responsibilities outside of school. And so maybe, but then when you come to a place like SNHU, where the vast majority of our students are not traditionalist students and have all these outside obligations and families and all of that. I think it is worth now and then thinking about the stuff that they have to go through and keeping that in mind as we are doling out punishment <laughs> and bad right. grades and all of that. And one of the things that I have come to realize through my years of doing this is oftentimes the real world, as we call it, our students are already living in it. Uh, this is, for many of them, an add-on. They're getting a master's degree to improve their real world experience. So, you know, they already know what the real world is like. And truthfully, in my husband's job, he's an engineer. If we have a sick child and somebody has to be home, his boss is going to let him have a day off if he needs it. So I think that we as instructors have to sometimes have a little flexibility. And it's one of the reasons I love our late policy because it gives that little bit of extra when something comes up that you don't expect, and it doesn't put the impetus on the instructor to decide whose reason is valid or not. It just, it's there. I don't have to know the whole story. I don't have to know anything. Um, sometimes when I know the whole story, I waive our late penalties, but I'm glad it's there so that students 
know that that flexibility is available. Yeah, and the 10% late penalty, ultimately, in the overall scheme of things, that's a pretty small penalty. It's it's a real penalty, but it also doesn't condemn the student to eternal failure. (laughs) It's something that's easily recoverable from. Yes, especially if it's a one-time thing on a discussion. You know, that is not going to change whether you make an A or C in the course. You know, I'm even flexible on that with students who have a family emergency. I'm usually willing to waive it if I know that it's something real, like a hurricane comes through your town. Right. (laughs) Most instructors, I think, are usually pretty reasonable about that kind of thing, as long as students reach out to the instructor. The instructors, we have no idea what's going on unless the student reaches out to us. And we don't always know when we need to reach out to the student to initiate the conversation. So it really does become kind of the student's responsibility to clue the instructor in and then and then they can work something out. Right. Is there anything that you feel like you would like to discuss before we move on to those recommendations? I guess the one thing I would like to get out there and I, depending on who's listening, is I think that we sometimes struggle to help our students understand truly what the job market is like out there. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I share with my students, especially in the capstone classes, is there is a way to make a living as a historian, even if you don't have a tenure track job. And I'm living proof of it. I've done it. It may not be traditional, but it is quite a good gig. And I I try to tell my students who are committed to looking for that very difficult-to-find job, there are other ways to do this, and some of them might even be better. And so I, I think that's one of the things that I, I would love to see our students have a better handle on, even those who think they're not going beyond the master's. But once you have this degree, there's quite an open door out there. You just got to look for it. That was one of the ideas that first sparked this this podcast in the first place, was to try, try to figure out, especially with SNHU, since we have so many instructors coming from so many different fields that are just teaching part-time for SNHU, it's, it's, we figured there's kind of a natural base there of knowledge of what people can do outside of traditional teaching jobs. And yes, I think that's become very apparent to me. I mean, I came out of the traditional academia, and so I was expected to do the tenure-track job, and I found my way into this position at SNHU, so I kind of didn't really go those other routes, but I have, but all the people I've been talking to as part of this podcast series have demonstrated all the various ways that you can go with it. And so it's interesting to hear how people, even if they're not getting the tenure track job, they are finding other ways to capitalize on their skills as a historian to find lucrative and rewarding careers out there, whether it's as, you know, archaeologist or a museum specialist or, um, I mean, there, we've talked to so many different people on this podcast that take it in, do, in new ways that it's great to hear that there are actually a lot of options out there that the historian skills are not required solely for teaching or in kind of in a traditional role, but there are alternative paths out there that people can take and actually use it and find rewarding careers. It's one of the most encouraging things I've gotten out of this whole podcast series. Yeah, I would imagine that there are quite a few of us, you know, instructors in the in the department and throughout the, the SNHU system that have a lot to offer in that direction. And so it's great to uh, to get to talk to everybody. So I was glad I was able to talk to you. Did you think of anything that you'd like to uh, recommend for us this week? Well, I don't know how the, the historians will respond, but um, <laughs> I'm actually currently binging Man in the High Castle on Amazon Uh-oh. Prime. 
I love the sort of alternative history and just in my mind thinking, what if? One of the first things that ever really got me interested in history as a, as a youngster, probably 10 or 11 years old, was a comparison someone made along the way to Hitler and Napoleon, which as a sixth grader, that's probably very weird. But <laughs> I constantly, from that point on, found myself reading books about the Nazis. And so I've really found this series kind of interesting to watch. No, as a historian, knowing it's all fictionalized, even more more so than fictionalized, it is alternative history. It's been interesting to watch, and I love anything period drama with costumes. I've seen that advertised on Amazon Prime, and I thought that looked really cool. I just haven't gotten into it yet. Is that If I have it right, is the basic storyline is something that there's an alternate universe where the Nazis win, but they somehow a uh, like a newsreel from our timeline makes it there or something? Yes, they, that's exactly it. Oh, okay. And so they see that the Nazis lost another reality and this that's kind of sparks a resistance movement or something? Yes, that's it exactly. Oh, very cool. Um, and it, it's based on a, what was a science fiction book. Um, I think they've gone a little further than the the book did where it, land, where it ended. Yeah, I watched the first season – when it was, I think it's been almost two years, and, and I was interested, but the second season has kind of really gotten into that resistance part of it, and I can't stop. <laughs> my, my kids, they come in and they say, you're watching that again? That's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to definitely put that on my uh, to-watch list. I've toyed with it a few times, but, you know, it, when you're looking to start a whole new dramatic series like that, you're like, oh, boy, I don't, where do I find the energy and the time and all that? But yes. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll give it another look because it sounds really cool. Well, one of the benefits of our situation is I'm kind of a night owl. I don't have to get up quite as early as someone who has to be in an office every day. Right. So I usually do that after everyone else has gone to bed. Ooh, even better. My kids are teenagers. They could watch it, but I just like to do something that's all for me. Yeah, that's the other issue we run into is that I have an eight-year-old, and so right. I don't think that's probably going to be appropriate for him. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's got to be after he goes to bed, but his bedtime is a very long, drawn-out process still, so we're not oh, getting I much done. Oh, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm going to recommend uh, some entertainment also. I'm going to recommend the movie First Man, uh, which just came out uh, mid-October, I think it was, uh, starring um, Ryan Gosling, I think that's his name, <laughs> as... Um, as Neil Armstrong, and so it's a biopic of Neil Armstrong, but it's also, of course, talking about the NASA and the creation of the Merc the Gemini missions and the Apollo missions and him going to the moon and all of that. And so Neil Armstrong, from all accounts, was a very reserved, tight-lipped, kind of an uptight guy who didn't talk much, and that that comes through very well in the movie. <laughs> it's, it's, it, okay. I imagine that made for a difficult movie to write because you can't make him a dynamic he's not he's not one of those astronauts who was out partying and high-fiving everybody and you know he's it does so it's not like the right stuff where you've got people in fighter jets and all of that armstrong was much more of kind of an egghead engineer who you know he was he was a fight he was a test pilot and all that but he didn't have the same party mentality and so it didn't have that type of drama to it it just had more of the general drama of you know the development of the of this massive vehicle to get people to the moon and practicing to get to the moon and all of that and so it, it's 
you know, it's fictionalized in some cases, like all biopics are. Uh, there's a kind of a there's a moment at the end of the movie that's really that's really quite dramatic and gets you a little bit kind of you know a little bit verklempt, but that never actually happened in real life. But you know, that's the kind of things that happens in these types of movies, I suppose. But it gives you a good you know sense of the scale of the trip to the moon and just how dangerous it was because it always talks it's always talking about the people that are dying along the way like there there was a plane crash that killed a couple of uh, astronauts and there was the um the Apollo 1 fire where three of them died in a fire inside the capsule and all of that so it it, it does a good job of demonstrating the danger and the drama just involved with that whole endeavor and so it's a, it's a, it was a very good movie and I recommend it to everybody um there are people out there who are having a problem with it because it doesn't take the time to show them planting the flag on the moon and my take on it is is if that's the reason you're not going to go see this movie then i don't know what to tell you but (laughs) because that's such a small thing to get upset about that you've got other other things that you need to probably focus on right and it's like every other scene in the movie has the american flag everywhere it's on all their shoulders (laughs) it's on the vehicles it's they when they do wide angle shots when they're on the moon they've got the flag right there so Anyway, that's kind of a, a silly political thing that's come up lately, and and from what I understand, I mean, it's possible that might have influ- that might have affected some other sales during the first week and all that. But whatever, uh, it's a good movie, so check it out uh, either yeah. either in the in the theater or on video or whatever. It's it, I think it's it's worth the time. Yeah, it sounds like one I would enjoy. Yeah, my wife and I are huge space buffs. Okay. I think for spring break next year, we're going to go visit the um, Cape Canaveral site in Florida because <laughs> we're nerds. We want to see the Saturn rocket down there. I can understand that. It's worth seeing. Been yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I've, I haven't been there before. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. We took our kids to Disney World last year for spring break. And while we were there, like, well, while we're here, we didn't tell you this part, but we're going to Cape Canaveral. Awesome. And our son is a big science nerd, so he loved every bit of it. Excellent. Yeah, I don't know if my if my son's that big a nerd yet or not, but we'll find out. <laughs> well, you can help him along the way. <laughs> oh yeah, he. I mean, his his mom is overeducated, and I'm overeducated, so he doesn't have a chance. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for joining me today, Stephanie. Yeah. Thanks so much. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes. As always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For the missing James Fennessy and Stephanie McConnell, I am Rob Denning. Bye. I would think that people, when they're talking about themselves, it's easy. Yeah, it's really, it's not, because, you know, when I first started this project, I was thinking, oh, my God, I've I've never interviewed anybody, and I have, you know, what what am I going to ask someone to get them to talk about themselves? But luckily, a lot of people are willing to talk about themselves, especially if you phrase it in the context of, you know, your research proposal and all of that, because, you know, we academics, we, you know, I don't want to talk about myself very much, but, oh, I'll tell you all about the intricacies of the California Department of Watercraft. Let's do that. <laughs> so that'll get them going for a while, and then usually that loosens things up a bit, and then you can start talking about other stuff too. So it, luckily, this is a an easier process than I was afraid of when I first started the podcast.